Good evening. Welcome to all of you from Holy Infants Adult Faith Formation Team, and welcome to all our live stream viewers as well. We're happy to have you here for part two of Leave No Soul Behind with Fred Vilbig. Tonight, Fred's going to share with us the importance of living a life of holiness and sacrifice in our efforts to attract others to the faith. We'll begin with a prayer before Fred starts tonight. Lord God, you who breathed the spirit of life into me, draw out of me the light and life you created. Help me to find my way back to you. Help me to use my life to reflect your glory and to serve others as your son Jesus did. Amen. Please welcome Fred Vilbig. Good evening, thank you for coming. Um, I had a couple of comments after the talk the other night. Uh, one was that I was ignoring the live stream viewers. I was ignoring the live stream viewers. So hello, live stream viewers. Oh, there's Chris back there waving at me. Um, Chris is doing the tech, he's got all kinds of buttons and things to push back there. So anyway, I will try to remember to look at the live stream viewers. I got thumbs up on that, so I must be doing that okay. Um, Another comment that was made was that, in effect, what I'm doing is I'm preaching to the choir. All of you who come here are people who are concerned about your faith, and the people who are watching are people who are concerned about their faith. And really, that's precisely what I'm trying to do here. We trying to get people, trying to get people to come back to the church, whether it's family, friends, you know, neighbors, whoever it might be. Um, it's hard to convince them to come back. What I'm suggesting is in order to save our loved ones and really to change society, we need to engage in a, the conflict, which is, you know, traditionally is referred to as a spiritual warfare, that we are part of the church militant, that we should be working for the salvation of our family, our friends, and even for society. And so the fact that I'm talking to people who are faithful practicing Catholics, except for one or two of you that I see out there, uh, but we'll talk later, um, the, uh, this, this is exactly the, the group that I want to talk to, because we need to engage spiritually to try to bring people back, to get the Holy Spirit to touch their hearts, to get them to come back to the church. 
um, and, and really to reform society, which is a mess. Okay, so the first night uh, I dealt with the problem, talked about the fact that the world is a mess, the solutions that the world offers fail miserably. Um, the problem with that is us, really, because we are wounded as a result of original sin. The, uh, the only solution, really, is God. God is the only reality. If you think about it, the, uh, everything that's created is created for God, in God, and God sustains it in being. And so really God is the only reality that's out there and he has a plan. And if we deviate from that plan, that's where we get into chaos. We are pushing ourselves. We don't push God away. God is always there. He's ready for us. We're pushing ourselves away from God. That's why we have the chaos that we have. So we reject God uh, as a society. You can't force people to convert. You can't even argue your way into it. You have to be ready to give an explanation of your faith, but you really can't argue. I know that I have 11 children and I can argue till I'm blue in the face and it doesn't matter. So what you have to do is you have to engage God and ask him, the Holy Spirit, to touch their hearts. Once their hearts are touched, Archbishop Sheen uh, had a comment that uh, every once in a while God has to break a heart to get in there. And so um, the, uh, the idea is that we need God we need the Holy Spirit to touch the hearts of our loved ones to get them to come back to the church. So um, the idea, though, is that if you read the saints, the, the idea is that you do this through prayer, which we talked about last time, living your faith, which I view as holiness, and sacrifice. And I'll get into living your faith and sacrifice tonight. Um, so living your faith, sacrifice, and then we'll do a wrap-up. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the expression, uh, don't talk the talk unless you can walk the walk. If you are not willing to live your faith, nobody's really going to believe you. Uh, Frederick Ozanam, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name, he was a student in Paris at the uh, University of Paris in the early 1800s, early to mid-1800s. And he was a devout Catholic. And one time he was talking, they were debating with some of the uh, people. That was after the French Revolution, which I talked about last time, one of my favorite things. That um, was after the French Revolution, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the Second uh, Empire uh, that, they, that they had. It, it was, you know, none of that worked out well. But anyway, they had a lot of rationalists there, the enlightened people. And anyway, Frederick was saying, well, as a Catholic, you need to do this. And as a Catholic, you need to do that. And one of the students challenged him and said, you know, you talk about this all the time. What are you doing? We have the St. Vincent de Paul Society as a result of that comment. You need to live your faith. And the, um, when you live your faith, St. James tells us that it, it invigorates your prayer in the fifth chapter of the letter of St. James, he says that the fervent prayer of a righteous person is very powerful. And so if we live our faith, it energizes our prayer. So living our faith is, is central to everything that we're doing here. The, uh, 
God has called us all. There's a, the Second Vatican Council talked about the universal call to holiness, that we are all called to holiness. Uh, Jesus said, you know, be holy even as your heavenly father is holy. And in the Old Testament, that, that sentiment is also expressed. So we are called on to live a holy life. Before we get into that, I, I'd like to talk about sin uh, not, not because I'm really attached to it, although we all are, but, but I think it kind of is a good contrast to what holiness is. In our society, people look at sin as being sort of a, you know, personal failing. You know, it's not that big of a deal. Little white lie here, fudging on your expense account at the office. It's just not that big of a deal. And so I don't think that that's the way that God looks at this. So imagine God, three persons in one, God the Father, there, there are a couple of different ways that you can understand the Trinity, this is the way that I can understand it. God the Father, all of us have an image of ourselves psychologically in our heads. I happen to be about 29, 30 years old and slim, really good looking, you know, and so, but all of us have this image. Well, God is perfect. He doesn't deceive himself like maybe I do. He knows exactly who he is, and he's all-powerful. He reflects on himself, and that's God the Son, becomes a person, God the Son. God the Son and God the Father love each other infinitely. Their love is so powerful that that love becomes a person, which is the Holy Spirit. That trinity of love is perfect in all ways, God is surrounded by a myriad of angels who are praising him and worshiping him. He is totally satisfied. He doesn't need us at all. But for some reason, Jesus Christ emptied himself, as St. Paul says, he emptied himself of his divinity and was born among us. He lived in Nazareth for 30 years. Now, those are referred to as the silent years. We really don't know much about it. There's a, um, it's, uh, it's not, a legitimate book of the Bible. It's not canonical, but it's the Proto-Evangelium of James, and it was written in about the year three or four hundred by uh, some heretics. But anyway, it's got Jesus performing magic tricks when he was a kid. Well, there was none of that. If you remember in the gospel, when Jesus went to preach at Nazareth, everybody was stunned. They said, wait, this is the carpenter's son. Where did he get all of this stuff? And Jesus was unable to perform any miracles because of their lack of faith. He had lived a very ordinary, quiet life in Nazareth. And yet, when he went to be baptized, John the Baptist, you know, baptized him. Uh, the Holy Spirit came down on him uh, in the uh, form of a dove. And out of the sky came a voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, he hasn't started his ministry yet. And yet God, is, God the Father is well pleased with him, even in that quiet life, which many of us live. So he emptied himself of his divinity. He became one of us, lived a simple life. He went about preaching to his apostles who were not rocket scientists. He had a lot of trouble with them. They didn't seem to catch on to what it was that, uh, that he was saying. And they, I'm probably gonna, if, I, if, you know, I pray that I get to heaven, I'm sure the apostles are gonna say, what were you doing dissing me? That's that Tuesday night. Um, anyway, so, you know, he, he taught, he argued with the Pharisees, he, he engaged in the, the culture, 
And then, because of that, he was arrested, he was tortured, and he was put to death in a very painful and humiliating way. And all of that so that we could go to heaven and so that he could get the forgiveness of our sins. If you think about it, for God to do that, that means that our sins are really significant. And in our society, we downplay them. And so I think it's important that we try, we'll never do it perfectly, but I think it's important that we try to live that holy life that we're called to. Um, there is, uh, uh, let me see, St. Faustina. Here, I brought my book just so you can see it. I have some bad news about that, but we'll get to it in a minute. Um, here on page 90 in the book. Uh, St. Faustina was given a, oh, St. Faustina is the saint of divine mercy, and she grew up a very simple, simple life in Poland. Um, she had a vision of Jesus, which prompted her to go to, um, go into a convent. They wouldn't let her in because she didn't have enough money to pay for her habit, and so she had to go and work for a year to earn enough money to pay for her habit. She entered the um, community and nobody really, she was not noteworthy at all, very quiet, meek. She just went about doing her job. Um, and then she had these visions of, divine, of the divine mercy. And um, anyway, she had a lot of encounters. And there's a book, her diaries, you can read them, her diaries out there. And you can read about all of the different visions. Well, one of the visions that she had was um, Jesus' uh, vision. Maybe that's not the right term. One of the experiences that she had was abandonment. For a period of time during, I think it was during one Lent, she felt totally abandoned by God. And she was absolutely miserable, absolutely miserable. And later she wrote, and I'm, I'm reading uh, her actual words as translated, I don't speak Polish, so. Anyway, I learned how horrible sin was. God gave me to know the whole hideousness of sin. I learned in the depths of my soul how horrible sin was, even the smallest sin, and how much it tormented the soul of Jesus. So sin is something that we should take seriously, that we should try to live a life of holiness. But that raises a question. What is holiness? If you go to the catechism, first of all, in the Bible, there's no place that it really says, it doesn't give a definition of holiness. Um, St. Paul talks about characteristics of holiness, but he never really talks about, you know, this is holiness. And the catechism doesn't really do, in the glossary, in the back of the catechism, they've got definitions. It doesn't have a definition of holiness. So I was really struggling with, is holiness all of those things that you do? But really, Jesus condemned that. That was why he condemned the Pharisees, because they were going through all the motions and everything. There's a line in the catechism that talks about how the love of God uh, is his holiness. And so really holiness is the love of God as mirrored in Jesus on the cross. Total selfless love. That to me is holiness. And if you use that as sort of the prism, the, the, the lens to look at holiness, to look at all of the things that we're told to do, I think it's very helpful. People look at the Ten Commandments and they say, Oh, those are just a bunch of rules. Well, if you look at them as guides to holiness, to selfless love, they actually become, I think, 
They're changed. It's not just a set of rules. For instance, thou shalt not steal. Well, that means that I can't take that piece of candy from the drugstore like I've always wanted to because I really like that candy. That, that's a, it's a negative. It's kind of like this you can't do. St. Basil the Great, who lived in the 300s in central Turkey, Cappadocia, um, he was a, a, brilliant, uh, a brilliant theologian, um, started a city, really. A, it was kind of a, a um, city of hospitals and, and um, facilities for the poor and everything. He was a very, very good man. One time he was preaching and he said, if you have two cloaks and you only need one, you're stealing from the poor. We need to share so that the, the, thou shalt not steal cuts two ways. It's not just I can't take from you, but I can't withhold the things that I don't need. I'm always kind of amused, and some of you may have this, I'm, so I don't mean to offend you, but I'm always amused at people who get storage lockers and they store all of their stuff. I'm thinking, what are you going to do with all this stuff? I'm, just, I'm at the point in my life where I'm just trying to get rid of all this stuff. But we seem to hold on to things. Maybe you need, maybe that in a sense, like St. Basil was saying, maybe that is that we're stealing, that we're taking from people who really need it. So go see the St. Vincent de Paul Society. The, um, the Ten Commandments, um, some people look at it, and I can say this from when I was younger and talk to people about this. Um, some people see it as a set of rules that used to apply because Jesus came to fulfill all of that. And yet Jesus says, no, he came to fulfill them, but not to abolish them. And so we're still subject to them. But I think that if you look at them as guides to selfless love, that that changes them. We also have in, in Matthew 25, um, if you've ever been to Rome and you go to the Vatican to the Sistine Chapel, uh, on the back of the Sistine Chapel is the, uh, I'm sure Father Stanger is going to have this painted up here, it's the uh, Last Judgment. And it, it's beautiful. There's some funny things about that. Evidently, uh, Michelangelo had painted some of his enemies <laughs> going into hell. Um, but anyway, so the, you've got this beautiful painting up there of the Last Judgment. That's based on Matthew chapter 25. And in there, Jesus said, he lists all kinds of things, and he says, whatever you do to the least of my brothers, you do to me. Now, Dorothy Day was a social activist, a Catholic social activist in the early to mid 20th century. Um, she started the Catholic worker houses. She'd started out as a communist. She had a child out of wedlock. Uh, she was just a real rebel. And then she had a conversion uh, where she became a devout Catholic. Um, she said that the mystery of the poor is that they are Christ to us. And so we are called on, and Mother Teresa would have agreed with that, that we are called to serve the poor as we would serve Christ. Um, but in Matthew 25, he goes through this, Jesus goes through this whole list of things that we should do for other people. And out of that, and after further reflection, we've developed the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And the corporal works of mercy, no, I can't recite them just off the top of my head, Feed the hungry, drink, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, visit the sick, visit the imprisoned, and bury the dead. 
Uh, I'd like to uh, highlight one of those in the book I go into. I talk about these, but I use the lives of saints to explain them. And I'd, I'd like to share with you one of those. Um, Martin de Porres was uh, born in, uh, I believe it was Peru. I forgot to write that down. Uh, was born in Peru. He was the illegitimate son of a Spanish nobleman and a uh, freed slave, a native, native American slave, native slave. And he grew up very poor because the father abandoned them. He grew up very poor. He was trained to be a barber. At that time, barbers were the surgeons. So in a sense, he had medical training. Well, he applied to the Dominicans to become a, a member of the Dominican order, but because he was illegitimate, they would only let him come in as a lay brother, basically a servant. And so he joined, and after several, and he was subject to all kinds of ridicule by some of his Dominican brothers. And several years later, the prior of that Dominican community realized that Martin was a real treasure and Martin knew some medicine. And so he admitted him to the community as a full-fledged brother. Um, he was not educated academically, so he did not become a priest, but he was, uh, yeah, I don't think he became a priest. Anyway, so, but he was, uh, he worked in the infirmary. Um, he still was ridiculed. A number of the other Dominican brothers were very critical of admitting this illegitimate, uneducated um, uh, person into the uh, community. But the prior insisted, and uh, Martin de Pors was a, you know, he worked in the infirmary, and there were a number of healings that were attributed to him. But what I want to focus on is the slave, we think of the slave trade in America as the slaves coming over and landing in, um, you know, the south, you know, on the, the Atlantic seaboard. Well, those, those trips were maybe three weeks long. They were horrible. I do not, I'm not trying to minimize that. They were horrible. The country of Peru, though, imported way more slaves, African slaves, than America did. And they had to go around the tip of South America and come way up the coast. And it took almost six weeks for them to get there. These poor people were chained down in the bottom of, the, of the, the, um, the ship. They were given very little to eat, just enough to sustain them. They lived in their filth, all kinds of people getting sick and all kinds of people dying. It was a horrible, horrible thing. Whenever a ship would come in, Martin de Pors would grab everything that he could and run down to the harbor, maybe because he himself was so, you know, ostracized from the community. He felt a tremendous rapport with these people. And when they came in, he would do a sort of a triage. He would take the ones that were healthy and say, you guys stand over there. The ones that were sick, he'd say, I'll get to you. The ones that were dying, he'd put, and he'd, he'd work with them, try to help them to get to the point where they could be baptized. He would baptize some, give last rites to some, and then he would treat the the, uh, the ones who were sick and would give them just whatever he could and maybe it was just a drink of water. And that was fulfilling one of those works of mercy, giving drink to the poor. We have an opportunity, I joke that 
really feeding the hungry. If you're a parent, you're feeding the hungry hordes every night. So maybe that's a part of that as well. There are also the spiritual works of mercy, and those are counsel the doubtful, instruct the ignorant, admonish sinners, comfort the afflicted, forgive offenses, patiently bear uh, wrongs, and pray for the living and the dead. And I'm going to have a test on those at the end, so I hope you got those down. Um, Anyway, I want to highlight uh, one of those forgiving offenses. Uh, Padre Pio, as most of you know him, he's now St. Pio of Petrolcina, uh, was born in a farming community in central, uh, central Italy, south central Italy. Uh, it was a very remote town. He uh, encountered a Capuchin, it's a type of Franciscan, a Capuchin um, a priest who was going around and was preaching. And he encountered him and he thought, I want to be one of those. Uh, they didn't have money to send him to school. So his father left Italy, went to America, worked and sent money back to the family so that Padre Pio could be educated. Never saw his family again. We don't, I don't know anything about what happened to him. There's nothing in the books that you read about Padre Pio. There's nothing about what happened to him. But he did send the money back so that Padre Pio could be educated. Well, Padre Pio was educated. He joined the Capuchins, which is sort of a uh, somewhat cloistered, not completely, but they're an enclosed community. And he joined the uh, Capuchin Franciscans. And the, um, uh, he, would, you know, he was a model, uh, a model priest. He would say mass very, you know, very devoutly. He would hear sermon, um, hear sermons, hear, hear confessions for hours and hours. He was doing everything that you were supposed to do. And one day he was in the choir. Uh, when you go to a, uh, you know, we have, we have seats like this. Well, in most religious communities, the seats go like this and the, they're facing each other. And so when you pray the office, one side recites you know, one part of the psalm and the other side recites the next part. And they go back and forth that way. So he was in the choir offering up thanksgiving for receiving communion. And he all of a sudden had a searing pain. It basically knocked him out. And when he woke up, he had the stigmata on his hands and on his feet. And uh, anyway, so this became, of course, big news. Everybody came flocking to see the stigmatist who was there. By the way, one time somebody asked him, said, well, you know, what of these wounds hurts the most? And he said, the one on the side, which no one ever saw. So anyway, he, he had the stigmata and he became sort of a, a, um, a notoriety. And people came from all over. Well, the church is very nervous about that. They don't want people to take advantage of things like that. And so they sent all kinds of people to investigate uh, Padre Pio. And there was one psychologist, and I believe he, well, I won't, won't say that. I think he was a member of a religious community. He was a priest. And um, I won't say which one. And um, he called Padre Pio a self-mutilating masochist with you know, delusions of grandeur or something like that. Totally critical. The, uh, the Pope who was, the, the, the Pope who was in, in office at that point also was very suspicious, didn't understand what was going on. And so what they did was they suppressed Padre Pio. They said, you cannot say public masses. You cannot hear confessions. You cannot engage with the public. In fact, you can't even communicate with your spiritual advisor. 
So he was put under this kind of interdict and he couldn't do anything. Not a word of complaint. Not a word of complaint in any of his writings. Not a word of, nobody reports that there was ever any complaint. He accepted it as it was a wrong. He accepted it for 10 years and he was just obedient to what the church asked him to do. After 10 years, there was a new pope. They had a new investigation and they decided that no, this was legitimate. And that's why we know we have all the pictures of Padre Pio saying mass with the, uh, uh, with the bandages on his hands and all of that. Um, he evidently had a great sense of humor. He would do practical jokes with some of his brothers, which I always think is kind of nice to know. <laughs> that saints have senses of humor. Um, but anyway, so that was a spiritual work of mercy, was suffering wrongs. And Padre Pio uh, lived that for us. So we are called on to live our faith, to live a holy life, because God calls us to be holy as he is holy. Um, and as I mentioned, St. James says that the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful. And so in order to empower our prayer, we need to live our faith. Living a life of selfless love, though, is a very difficult thing because we trick ourselves. We really, you know, we think we're pretty good. You know? We think we're doing a great job. You need to be brutally honest with yourself because other people will see when you do something and they'll say, nah, they're just doing that because they feel good about themselves. It, what we're called to is this selfless love. Um, I'd like to go on now to sacrifice and uh, I'll tell a story about a, uh, she's not a saint, she's a, a blessed. Um, her name is Margaret of Costello. She lived in the uh, late 1200s into the early 1300s. She was the daughter of a prince. Now back then you have to understand, you know, we have nations now. Well, they didn't have really, they didn't really have nations. They had city-states and the cities would fight each other all the time. So you wanted to have a strong prince that was in charge of your city that was going to control things. Otherwise, you'd be taken over by somebody else and reduced to almost a slavery because you'd have to be paying tribute to this foreign prince. So she was the daughter of a prince, but when, uh, when uh, the prince and his, uh, his wife uh, were expecting, they were hoping for a strapping young man that would be able to take over for the prince when the prince got old and that he would be able to uh, you know, protect them as they grew old. They were very disappointed. Margaret was born. She was disabled. She was a, a, a dwarf. I don't know if that's the proper term now. She was a dwarf. She, was, she had a hunched back. Uh, her uh, right leg was shorter than her left, and she was virtually blind. She was a tremendous embarrassment to her mother and father, who hid her away in the castle. And they almost didn't even have her baptized. Uh, the priest was saying, you need to have her baptized. And so they told the nurse, take her to be baptized. So the nurse was the one that took her to be baptized and picked out her name because the parents just couldn't be bothered with this deformed child. Um, she was hidden away and she was almost discovered in the castle by visitors when she was about six years old. And because uh, the mom and dad did not want their kind of their reputation to be sullied by this disabled child, 
they sent her off into the forest, into a cell that was attached to a, an old church and basically walled her up. There was a priest that would go by and would regularly visit with her. There was food provided, of course, but she never left that cell. And the priest would come by and talk to her about how much God loved her. Now, you know, if you were, you know, walled away in a cell and some guy coming and telling you how much God loved you, you'd kind of, I, I would think, you know, wait a minute, what are you talking about? God loves me, then why am I here? Margaret had a completely different reaction. She completely understood the love of God and she understood the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross and was uniting her suffering to that cross. Well, when she was about 12, there was a neighboring prince that invaded the kingdom, you know, that, that city-state, and her dad was worried that Margaret was going to be discovered. So he sends her off to a further place, to a castle, and puts her down in a dungeon where she lives, and this priest keeps coming to see her, taking her communion, but she's basically in a dungeon until she's 20. When she's 20, there's a neighboring town. They did not live in, in Costello. There was a neighboring, they, they lived in another town, and they heard about this Franciscan over in Costello who had died, and there were miracles being attributed to him at his gravesite. And so they said, oh, we better get over there. So they get up early in the morning because you don't want anyone to see you know, this, this girl, so they bundled her up so that nobody can see her, and they put her on a horse, and they head out of town, and they go to Costello. And they go by, and they find where the gravesite is, and they go and they take, they take uh, uh, Margaret and put her by the gravesite and say, pray for a miracle. And then they go wander around the town, sightseeing and buying. You know, they go to the, they go to the, uh, the trinket store and get whatever souvenirs are there. And anyway, they come back several hours later, and there's Margaret. There's no miracle. She's not healed. So then her parents leave. Again, they leave the town. They go back home, and they leave Margaret there as a street urchin. She was adopted, not formally, but she was kind of taken in by some of the other street people that lived there. And people began to see what a good person she was, even in spite of all the disabilities that she had. But they saw what a good person she was. And there were some people that tried to take advantage of that and that blew up in their faces. Eventually, she ended up with a group of Dominican uh, sisters, and they took their prayer life seriously, and they were visiting the poor, they were visiting prisoners, they were doing everything that you were supposed to do, and Margaret was in heaven. A number of miracles were attributed to her during her lifetime. Um, she, even though she was virtually blind, you know, she would go to visit you know, the, the prisoners. She would do everything that everyone else was doing. Uh, you know, this hunchbacked, crippled up, blind woman uh, going around uh, um, acting uh, uh, in charity for all of these people. Um, she was very inspiring to people as a result of that. And when she died, um, the people in the town immediately said she's a saint. Rome is a lot slower at naming someone a saint. It took them years before they said that she was blessed, and she still hasn't been canonized as a saint. And to me, it seems like she's an appropriate candidate, but I'm not on that committee. I'll see what I can do about it. Um, anyway, Margaret poses a real problem 
for modern day America. Because most people at that time said, or many people said, it would be better if she hadn't have been born. And I can imagine people saying that today in America. But people like Margaret pose a question for us. There's evil in the world. Well, the, the problem of evil is, if God is all good and God is all powerful, there shouldn't be any suffering and pain in the world. There is pain and suffering, so either God is not all loving or God is not all powerful. That's the problem of evil as it's posed by uh, philosophers and theologians. What they miss, though, is evil, and the Bible tells us this. Genesis has got some great stories, and they've got some great messages in it. The, the um, sickness, death, um, the sweat of your brow when you have to go out and, and work, all of those are the result of us loving ourselves. Original sin was when the devil said to Eve that if you eat this apple, actually, we don't know if it was an apple. I read a book once where it argued that it was a banana. If you eat this fruit, whatever it might have been, you will be like God. Well, of course, nobody is like God. God is infinite. He's infinite in time. He's infinite in beauty. He's infinite in power. And there, there, none of us are like God. So that was ridiculous. But that, for whatever reason, that was the temptation that Eve and Adam, Adam would have been right there, so, you know, Adam should have said, wait, honey, maybe we shouldn't do that. But no, he was all on board. So, guys, you don't get off that easy. Um, but what happened, though, was they ate the apple, and that brought suffering in. And the reason why, you know, some people say, well, if God was really great, he would have made it so that we wouldn't have done that. Well, the problem with love is you have to be free not to love somebody. You have to be free to love something else. That's why we have free will. Because God wants us to truly, completely, totally, and selflessly love him like he loves us. And so we are the ones that brought that in. There was a movie star, uh, I want to say it was Kurt Cameron, uh, but maybe not. He's the one that comes to mind. Uh, there was a friend of his who had, it was another movie star, who had a heart attack. And he wrote on Facebook or something, he said, I'll pray for you. And there was another, uh, another star who came down on him and said, you're going to pray to that God, that God that caused this? What kind of a malicious, malevolent God do you have? And went on and on and on condemning uh, Kurt Cameron for, for saying this. Um, that person didn't understand that the reason that evil is in the world is because of our choices that we make. Um, so there is suffering. I like to, you know, if you read Isaiah, there's a section of Isaiah where it talks about how, you know, the, the lion will, or the lamb will lay down with a lion and a child will play with poisonous snakes and not get bit. And it all sounds so wonderful. That's heaven. That's not the world that we experience. The world that we experience is more like in numbers when the Jews were wandering through the desert. At one point, they complained about the manna and quail that they were eating. I see nothing in the uh, Old Testament about a cookbook for manna and quail. So I think that it probably got a little bit old over time, and they complained about it. Well, 
it, it, when they pushed away from God, God allowed these seraph serpents to come into the camp and to bite them. And some people died as a result of that. We don't know what a seraph serpent is. I've got some ideas that I put in the book, but we don't really know what a seraph serpent is. But they would be bitten. They'd be, it'd be a lot of pain, and then they'd die. And so they turned to Moses and said, Moses, pray that God will take this away from us. And Moses said, God, please take this away. And God said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. If you get bit by a serpent, Moses, I want you to put a pole up with a bronze serpent on it, and if they look at that bronze serpent, they will be healed. God did not take the serpents away. God did not stop them from being poisonous. He did not make them, you know, not a painful experience. He just said, if you're bit, look at the serpent on the pole. I think that's the world that we live in. Jesus, I, I joke about this sometimes, um, Jesus was horrible at marketing, he said, come follow me, and he went to the cross. Really? So the, th the problem is human suffering is a part of our condition. As I mentioned uh, the other night, I grew up in, in uh, surrounded by Southern Baptists, and they told me that, you know, you Catholics and all kinds of things. I always enjoyed Monday mornings because I'd come in to, in high school, I'd come into to school, and the girls, the girls were always concerned about my conversion. You know, they were worried about me going to hell. And so they'd come and say, I can't believe you're a Catholic. Because, and I, I'd always be amused, because I knew what was coming. Not specifically, but I knew there was something. I said, so what did you hear this weekend? And they said, well, you Catholics do blah, 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 whatever it was. I really can't tell you in this setting what some of the things were. But it made the Catholic Church much more interesting than it is. I, I thought this is kind of an interesting possibility. But it was all ridiculous. Um, but the, um, you know, the, the whole, one of the things that they accused us of is that we are a cult of suffering. They were all wrapped up in suffering. And going back to Dorothy Day, Dorothy Day said, this isn't a cult of suffering. It's just a recognition of the human condition. This is the world that we live in. There is a lot of suffering. And so what do you do with that suffering? Well, the suffering is, you know, we can, in a sense, wallow in it and just say, oh, woe is me. But really, what happens when you were baptized into the, uh, into the church, you were actually engrafted into the body of Jesus. And so you are a part of the body of Christ. All baptized Christians are a part of the body of Christ. Now, Christ was both God and man. As man, he experienced things in time, just like you and I, just like you're suffering through this talk. So just like that, the, the, um, he experienced things in time. As God, everything that he did had an eternal, infinite significance. So that his, um, the passion and death of Jesus is an eternal reality on that level. And that's why when we go to Mass, at Mass, we are actually participating in the actual uh, sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary. They refer to, theologians refer to it as the eternal now. We are eternally present to that moment which is in history and outside of history. So when you and I experience suffering, we should unite it to the sacrifice of Jesus 
at Mass on the altar, and it gives eternal significance to that. Paul said, I rejoice in the suffering, in the suffering that I endure, because I'm making up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. And I remember asking Father Monahan, some of you may remember Father Monahan. I remember asking Father Monahan one day, I said, What does that mean? You know, because Jesus' sacrifice was complete, perfect, total. And he said, No, 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 no. He wants you to join with him in that sacrifice. He wants you to unite your suffering to his. And so that's what we're called to do. So we do that at Mass, but you can also do that every day. Um, Many of you uh, know, some of you don't know, about the morning offering. Uh, Oh my Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world. Um, And it goes on. Um, That came out of a seminary, a Jesuit seminary in Valls, France. Now Valls, France is down, it's in the southwestern corner of France. It's uh, near the Pyrenees Mountains where the Basque uh, people live uh, right across from uh, Spain. It's this little bitty town now and it was a little bitty town there. They had all of these Jesuit seminarians that were going there. That was where they had their training. And these guys, they had been hearing the stories of St. Isaac Jogues and uh, Jean de Brebeuf over here in the United States that were in Canada, excuse, excuse me, that were, um, uh, that were martyred. They heard all the stories of St. Francis Xavier converting tens of thousands of people. These guys were on fire. They were being trained for the missions and they were biting at the bit. They had to be trained though. And so the, the uh, priest that was in charge, the rector, saw all of this spiritual energy, and he said, offer it up. Did your parents ever say that to you, offer it up? You know, my mom had uh, scoliosis, so her spine uh, turned, but it also twisted. She was in a lot of pain. She was on narcotic strength pain medicine most of her life. I would have thought that she would have been really tied in to the whole offering it up, She never said that to me. And so when people would say that to me, I'd say, what are you talking about? But we need to offer up those sacrifices. And they don't have to be monumental things. Um, St. Alphonsus Liguori talks about how the little sufferings, the little inconveniences that come your way, if you offer those up, because they come from God, they are invaluable. And so you offer those up. Say the daily your morning offering every day and unite your sufferings to the sufferings of Christ. And uh, so, you know, if you have small sufferings, if you have large sufferings, whatever they are. Um, so we talked about the Mass. Okay, so the question is, what now? One of the options is you do nothing. Well, I'm reminded of the words of Edward Burke, Edmund Burke, who was a British politician. Uh, He was a member of parliament at the time of the American Revolution. He actually supported the American Revolution, which I'm sure was a horribly unpopular thing for him to do. But he made the comment, he said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So if you are sitting on the sidelines or if you deny that there's a problem, I would suggest that you may be part of the problem, that we may be part of the problem. They always tell me I shouldn't use the the pronoun you, so it should be we may be part of the problem. 
We make a lot of excuses. We might say, well, the problem is too big. St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross was born as Edith Stein. She was a Jewish, uh, devout, came from a devout Jewish family, uh, lived in Germany at about the time of Hitler's rise. She read the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila and was converted. It was much longer than that, but that was uh, one of the things that triggered her. She became a Catholic. She wanted to become a Discalced Carmelite nun, but um, they said, wait a minute, you know, the people, what they do is they say, give this some time, let it settle in, and if you still, after a while, decide that you want to be, you know, a nun, don't do this just out of excitement, which is what people do sometimes. So they said, you know, so he, she, keep te she kept teaching until Adolf Hitler said that Jews could not teach. And so it was at that point that they put her into, uh, they allowed her to enter the, um, the uh, Discalce Carmelite uh, convent. They had to move her because the Nazis were coming to take her one night and they had to move her. And she eventually um, was arrested. She and her sister, who also joined, were arrested and taken to Auschwitz, and within a day or two, they were put to death in the gas chamber. But back in, in you know, the early 1930s, way before any of the death camps were known, way before, you know, they knew Hitler was on the rise and they knew that he was a threat, but it was before Kristallnacht, which is when the Nazis went and destroyed all of the Jewish uh, synagogues, she wrote, Every time I feel my powerlessness and inability to influence people directly, I become keenly aware of the necessity of my own Holocaust. She used the word Holocaust way before the Holocaust started. So if we feel powerless, we lean into God because he's the one. Oh, we're minions. My kids love that image. We're minions. Um, so we're minions. We need to just cooperate with God and let God do his thing, not get in his way. We might say that we're too busy. Well, Leon Bloy was a writer, a French writer in the, um, around 1900, 1910, and he, he was a really unpleasant guy. He got into fights with everybody and you know, was really kind of a nasty character. He wrote something, he said, the only real tragedy in life is not to die a saint. This is the most important thing that we can do, is to pray for the salvation of our children, our families, loved ones, for our society. So if you think you're too busy, you're missing the point. Um, you might say, we might say, we're not a good speaker. Well, I'd like to remind you that St. Joseph, who never says a word, he had a lot of dreams, but he never says a word in the Bible. St. Joseph is the universal patron of the church. You don't have to be a good speaker. And you might say, I'm not educated enough. Well, some of my favorite saints are the ones that are very simple. Uh, you might have heard of Brother Andre Bisset. Uh, Brother Andre uh, was, uh, he was uh, born and raised in northern uh, Quebec. His dad was a carpenter. Now, at that time, you couldn't go down to the hardware store and get wood. And so you'd have to go out and cut your own trees down, plane them off, you know, let them dry, do all of that stuff. Well, when um, Andre was about um, eight, his dad was caught on the wrong side of a tree and it killed him. So he and his family, he had uh, seven or eight brothers and sisters, and they, they were struggling through. Well, then his mom, when he was 12, and he, he always said, I never pray for my mom, I pray to my mom, because he felt that his mom was a saint. 
His mom developed tuberculosis and died when he was 12. They tried to find something for Andre to do because he, um, he uh, you know, you need to have a trade. We didn't go to school. He barely had any schooling. Uh, but they tried to get him to learn to be a blacksmith, to be, you know, whatever it was. He was horrible at all of that. He was just, he was just kind of a waste. But there was a priest. He kind of made these rounds trying to find something that he was good at. And he ended up at this community. There was a priest in Quebec who started a trade school to try to help improve the condition of the rural poor where he was. And he saw the holiness of Andre and he said, he said, you know, you ought to go and apply to the Holy Cross Fathers in, um, in Quebec, in Montreal, rather, in, in Montreal. And so he sends him off to Montreal to the Holy Cross Fathers. It's a high school, uh, kind of like CBC. And so he sends him off to the Holy Cross College there. And, um, and in his letter, he says, I'm not sending you an applicant. I'm sending you a saint. Well, Andre gets there, and they say, okay, we'll let you try this out. And he's there for about a year, and Andre's health had never been good, never, never. They baptized him the day he was born because they thought he was going to die. So it never been good. Um, at the end of the time, they said, you know, you're too sickly. We really can't have you here. And he was all devastated and upset. Well, the Archbishop of Quebec came by to visit the high school, and Andre somehow managed to get in there where he was, threw himself at the feet, foot of the archbishop and said, oh, please let me stay. They're going to throw me out. I can't. And anyway, it impressed, you know, I'm not quite sure how you term that, but it impressed the archbishop so much. He looked at the, at the Holy Cross Fathers and he said, listen, somebody that wants to be in your community this badly, you've got to let in. So he got in. But then the problem is, what do you do with Andre? He can't do anything. So they said, okay, we'll let you answer the door. So they had a door People come and knock. They say, I'm looking for Father Johnson. Of course, that's not, you know, they're, they're in France or they're in French-speaking uh, Canada. Anyway, uh, Johnson. Anyway, so they came in, you know, and he'd go and find whoever it was. He would mop floors and sweep and things. Well, one day he was, uh, he was sweeping up in the uh, infirmary and there was a boy there who had been very, very sick. And Brother Andre was, you know, sweeping the floor and looked around, looked over him and said, what are you doing there? And he said, Brother Andre, I'm sick. You know, they told me to be here. He said, no, you're not sick. No, Brother Andre, they told me I'm sick. No, no, you're not sick. You should get up and go play. He said, no, Brother Andre, I'm... All of a sudden, the boy realized that he was perfectly healthy. He gets up, gets dressed, goes out to play in the, in the yard with, uh, with all the boys. Well, one of the priests sees him and says, what are you doing out here? And big, had a big fit brought him in, there's a big to-do, brought him in, and he said, Brother Andre told me to come out. So they take him in, put him back in bed, the doctor's examining him, and, the, and the, the head of the community is yelling at Brother Andre about, how dare you do this? What do you think you're doing? And then the doctor looks up and says, uh, excuse me, but this boy is perfectly healthy. That was the first of hundreds of miracles that Brother Andre, now he would never take credit for it. He would always... He loves St. Joseph. And so he'd always say, it's St. It's Joseph, I'm just his lap dog. Um, but he loved St. Joseph. And so he'd always attribute these to St. Joseph. But Brother Andre was the intermediary uh, for hundreds of, 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 uh, of, of miracles, of healings. Anyway, so what he did, though, was he really was devoted to St. Joseph. And so he wanted to build a 
an oratory, a place of prayer for St. Joseph. And so they got permission to build it on this mountain and he built a little, uh, little hut shack kind of thing. People came, way too many people. So then they had to expand it, way too many people. And then they expanded, they had sliding doors on it, still too many people. If you go to Montreal now, on Montreal, there is a huge basilica, the oratory of St. Joseph there, that Brother Andre, he did not see it built to completion, but he got, got everything going. And on the back wall, I haven't been there, I'd love to go there. On the back wall, I'm told, are all of the medical devices that uh, people left behind when they were healed. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. Brother Andre barely had like a sixth grade education. You do not have to be a genius to do this. What we need is we need people to pray, to live their faith, and to offer sacrifice in order to change the world and to fix the mess that we're in. Um, we often were, I, I, the concluding that, conclusion that I wrote is that, you know, a lot of times we're all looking for superheroes to do this, but really God empowers all of us to be that superhero. So my advice to you is to go out and to be super. Thank you for coming. I'd like to again thank Celia Donio for, uh, and Zip Rezepa, Zip let us use his uh, fancy camera here um, that we, we think we figured out how to use. <laughs> so... Uh, anyway, I want to thank uh, Celia and Zip for letting us use the camera. Chris is back there in the back. Hi, Chris. I want to thank everybody who is watching on live stream. Uh, I'd like to thank the, um, the adult faith community for letting me talk. And thank Father Stanger for letting me come up and talk. Um, I really do think that this is an important message. It's not just about you and I becoming holy. It's about us changing the world. So... Um, I was told that I was supposed to take any questions that you guys might have. No questions? Boy, I did a good job. <laughs> uh, I do have bad news. So I ordered books. Da, 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 da. Anyway, so I ordered books. They haven't arrived. So uh, I think the snowstorm that they had last week backed everything up, and probably they'll arrive tomorrow. I probably should have ordered them way in advance, but I didn't. Uh, so that was my fault. I just didn't know that there was going to be a snowstorm. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> who would have thought? Um, since we were having, you know, beautiful weather all up until we had that week of winter when it was all got condensed into one, one week. Um, anyway, if anyone is interested in, in buying the book, um, if you want to, you can put your name, email, and a number of books, if you want to buy a couple of dozen, that would be fine. Um, but a number of books that you want, if you want to put that back there, we'll get in touch with you and make arrangements for the delivery. For anyone watching on live stream, if you're not in the area, um, you can either order them on Amazon, uh, but then you have to pay shipping. Another option would be to go to your bookstore and ask them, because they are on uh, Ingram Sparks is the distributor company that, that we have it with. And so they can get it from Ingram Sparks uh, if you'd like to get a copy of the book. Um, and, uh, oh, and also if you, if you want, uh, there is a, um, you can get a, a, a Kindle version of the book. And the other thing is I have recorded the book. I just haven't figured out how to upload it to an MP3 file. Uh, there's a, uh, 
there's a, a platform you can put this on. I've got everything ready to go. It's just I've got, got to figure out how do you get all those little megabytes up into the cloud. I just don't know how to do that. So anyway, thank you for coming. God bless. Oh, wait, there is a question. Oh, the web. So I have a website. Thank you. I totally forgot to mention that. So I have a website. The idea is what I want to do is I want to encourage people to have, you know, intelligent, informed discussions of their faith. And so I put together a website. It's called catholicgathering.com. Uh, we are going to be selling, and it's, it's a kind of a coffee shop motif. It has a coffee shop on it. And uh, we're going to actually be selling coffee. Um, I put together a coffee program for uh, another uh, charity. I'm going to put together a separate coffee program for this. So we'll be selling coffee on it. Um, we do invite, uh, if you have, you, you can, uh, we've got the email set up so that if you want to send an email, I'm not saying that I'm going to respond to all of the hundreds and hundreds of emails that I'm sure that I'll get. You know, if I get one or two, I'll be happy. Um, but I won't, I won't respond to all the emails. Uh, but if you have a question or a comment about something that you'd like to have addressed, you know, maybe we can do that. We're going to have um, podcasts. Celia has been encouraging me to do podcasts. These talks, the talk I gave last Friday on the four last things, the talk I'm going to give next week on the cross and the love of Christ, all of those will be posted on the website. Um, I also have lined up a, um, he is a uh, constitutional law professor at the University of Missouri Law School who participated in the Trinity Lutheran Church case where uh, there was, uh, the state of Missouri was discriminating against Trinity Lutheran Church on the basis of it being a church. And he participated in an amicus brief uh, and uh, is very familiar with the case. We're going to, there's a lot of things going on in religious freedom right now. And we're, I, call, I contacted him, I've had him, I used to be the president of the Catholic Lawyers Association here in St. Louis, and we had all these speakers that came, and we can't do that now. So what I'm gonna try to do is I'm gonna try to have people come and do podcasts instead of having uh, those, uh, those talks in person meetings. But anyway, so I contacted uh, this uh, professor, his name's Carl, and I said, Carl, would you be interested in this? And he wrote back and he said, well, who's the audience? And I said, it would probably be, you know, uh, lay people in, in, in the legal world, people who aren't lawyers or lay people. So, okay, it's kind of pompous. But anyway, um, so I said, it's going to be lay people. It's going to be, you know, people that, you know, are, don't have uh, a uh, legal education. And he said, well, okay. Then, and I was talking to him about one podcast. Okay, so we'll do six podcasts, 30 minutes. Of, he's got it all lined out in his head. So uh, those will show up uh, where I think we're going to get some really good discussions on religious freedom. Some of the things that have been happening recently uh, with shutting down the churches in New York and in California and some of those cases that are coming up. Uh, so that will be very interesting. Um, I would also like to do some history podcasts. Uh, there, we have a, for instance, um, when you hear the word inquisition, you think of torture, you think of abuse, you think of these imprisonments, all these horrible things. Uh, there is a professor down at St. Louis University, uh, Adam Smith. He's from England, you know. Anyway, that's my attempt at an English accent. 
Anyway, so uh, Professor Smith is an expert on the Inquisition, not because he's really kind of a masochist or sadist or something, but because he finds it fascinating because the people who kept, oh, there are all kinds of records on this, and the people that kept records were all the lawyers who were involved in this, and the Inquisition that you have in your mind is a figment of the imagination of the English who hated the Catholic Church. And so really the Inquisition brought us trial by jury. It brought us the right to be represented by counsel. It brought us the right not to incriminate yourself. We think of all of those as being English things. All of those really grew out. Oh, and the torture, they realized that torture was not a good way to get evidence out of people, and so they didn't torture people. But that's what you see in the Iron Maiden, if you've ever seen the picture of that with the spikes and things, that was made up by an Englishman. You know, there's never been an Iron Maiden, but that's what they, so anyway, I want Professor Smith uh, to uh, do a podcast with me. He came and he talked to the Catholic Lawyers Association, and you know, he's this, this British man, and he's got this very dry sense of humor, and so he's going along, and he'd say something, and then he'd stop and look at us. And we're all looking at one another saying, wait, that was funny. Did he mean to be funny? Was he telling a joke? And by the end of the talk, we were rolling, because he, he really was hilarious. But he had this very, very dry sense of humor. So I want to get Professor Smith back. Um, we were, uh, were trying to do a, an audio with, um, I'm sorry, a podcast with uh, Father Burkamper about uh, Lent and... Uh, um, and uh, uh, fasting, I don't know that I touched on fasting. Yeah, I think I did. I, I mentioned that fasting was kind of a making prayer physical. Um, and then um, I'm also uh, hoping that we'll have somebody come on and talk about Our Lady of Guadalupe and also the Sacred Heart. And so if anybody has any ideas, feel free to email me at info at catholicgathering.com. I'd love your ideas, and we'll try to figure out how to get all of this uh, onto the website. And sign up because what we'll do is we'll notify you whenever something new has been uh, released. Uh, I'm still, I'm working with Celia. She's going to tell me how to do this because this is way, way beyond my pay grade. So anyway, thank you very much for, there are no other questions, right? Thank you very much for coming. Oh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. That's it. Anyway, (laughs) the book is Leave No Soul Behind and the subtext is a Catholic handbook. I wasn't, I was writing this specifically to Catholics, uh, which is probably not very ecumenical, but I think we as Catholics through the mass have the greatest treasure on the face of the earth because Jesus continually is offering his sac- the sacrifice of his life for our salvation and he's inviting us to join with him in that sacrifice. And so I think I wanted to write this to help Catholics, because I'm not sure how well Catholics were taught these things. Well, at least when I was growing up, you know, the post-Vatican II years, I, I really didn't know any of this. I had to learn it by reading and, uh, and studying it. But to me, it's the, the church is, a, is a, a real blessing, and I don't think that we appreciate that as much as we should. So anyway, that's why, but it's called no soul, leave, leave No Soul Behind, A Catholic Handbook. And uh, like I said, the book is available on Amazon. Any other questions? Thank you very much for coming. God bless.